welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the skin and soft tissue module from the general surgical curriculum. And our operational topic we'll be covering today is essentially the two conditions that have to do with sweat glands. So we're going to be talking about hyperhidrosis and hydroadenitis suppurativa. So let's start off with a little bit of anatomy. So there are two main types of sweat glands. So this includes the eccrine glands and the apocrine glands. Eccrine glands are coiled tubular structures that extend from the subcutaneous tissues into the dermis. And these are innervated by cholinergic fibers in sympathetic nerves. They're found throughout the skin and have their greatest concentration on the palms, soles, and the face. Apocrine glands are modified sweat glands that are mostly found in the axilla, on the areola, periumbilical, genital, and perianal regions. And these are also coiled tubular structures that drain into the hair follicles. And they excrete an odorless secretion and are supplied by adrenergic fibers in the sympathetic nerves. And in response to elevated temperatures, the hypothalamus induces acetylcholine release via muscarinic receptors, which stimulates sweat glands to secrete sweat. And this is done within vesicles via exocytosis. And when there's low rates of sweating, salt is reabsorbed. And in high rates of sweating, less salt is reabsorbed so that there's more water to evaporate on the skin surface. I want to talk a little bit about the autonomic nervous system, mainly because I haven't talked about it elsewhere in this podcast and because I love anatomy. So essentially, the autonomic nervous system is made up of sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves. Starting with the sympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nerves originate in the lateral horn cells of the thoracic and upper lumbar spinal cord. The sympathetic fibers leave these lateral horn cells and travel with the anterior nerve root of that spinal segment to reach the sympathetic trunk. And the sympathetic fibers communicate with the sympathetic trunk through the white rami communicans before synapsing in the sympathetic trunk and leaving the sympathetic trunk through the gray ramus communicans. And then these fibers are distributed to the branches of the spinal nerve um, that they need to get to to innervate the sympathetics to those organs or skin or wherever it is that they're heading. There's a sympathetic trunk on either side that extends alongside the vertebral column from the skull to the coccyx. And so even though the sympathetic nerves only come from the thoracic and upper two lumbar spinal levels, the sympathetic chain extends all the way up into the cervical area and all the way down into the pelvis. This sympathetic chain has a ganglia for each level, but 
actually what happens is that some of them will unite. So the upper four cervical ones will unite to form the superior cervical ganglion. The fifth and sixth form the middle cervical ganglion and the seventh and eighth fuse as the inferior cervical ganglion. And this is also often fused with the first thoracic to be called the stellate ganglion. The lumbar plexus gives off a few different other branches which are called splanchnic nerves. So T5 to T12 give off the greater, lesser and least splanchnic nerves which pierce the diaphragm and provide parasympathetics to the um, uh, abdominal organs essentially. And the lumbar splanchnic nerves contribute to the inferior mesenteric or the hypogastric ganglions, which supply parasympathetics to the pelvic organs. In terms of the neurotransmitters from the sympathetic nerves, this is going back quite a way for me all the way back to medical school, but the preganglionic neurons secrete acetylcholine, which um, essentially is synapses at nicotinic receptors in the sympathetic ganglion. And then postganglionic neurons secrete norepinephrine, which act on the alpha or beta receptors of the target organ. In contrast, the parasympathetic nervous system originates from the cranial nerves as well as the sacral segments two to four, known as the pelvic splanchnic nerves. So in terms of the cranial nerves, the oculomotor nerve, the third nerve, has parasympathetics that synapse at the ciliary ganglion and go to the eye. The facial nerve has parasympathetics that go to the pterygopalatine and submandibular ganglions to have action on the lacrimal glands and the salivary glands. The glossopharyngeal nerve has parasympathetics that synapse at the otic ganglion and go to the parotid gland. And the 10th nerve, the vagus nerve, as we all know and love, travels down into the thorax, initially starting on the left and right-hand side of the esophagus before rotating to become the anterior and posterior vagus nerves and supplying the gastrointestinal tract all the way around to the uh, lateral two-thirds of the transverse colon. And then the S2, 3, and 4 pelvic splanchnic nerves synapse at the inferior hypogastric plexuses to supply parasympathetics to the descending colon, sigmoid, rectum, and the pelvic organs. The cranial nerve parasympathetics do synapse at ganglions, so there's pre- and post-ganglionic fibers, but the pelvic nerves and the vagus nerves actually synapse at the target organ. So that's a little bit different than the sympathetic nervous system. And so the parasympathetic neurotransmitters are essentially acetylcholine, which act on the nicotinic receptors at the ganglion, either in a ganglion or at the target organ. And then they also secrete acetylcholine and act on muscarinic receptors at the target organ. Okay, so I can tell that I went way off track with talking about hyperhidrosis. So getting back to talking about the topic we're here to listen to today, hyperhidrosis is essentially an excessive secretion of sweat, which affects somebody's quality of life. And this commonly includes the axillas, 
the palms and the soles of the feet, but can include other areas such as the face, scalp, inguinal and inframammary folds. The classification is either generalized or focal. So generalized affects the whole body, but focal can be due to local disruption of sympathetic nerves, such as in Frey syndrome, due to congenital malformations or peripheral neuropathy. The causes of hyperhidrosis can be split up into primary and secondary causes. So primary hyperhidrosis is overactivity of the sympathetic nervous system innervation of sweat glands. And primary hyperhidrosis usually presents in adolescence, is often bilateral, and incurs with increased activity and stress during the day. And the diagnostic criteria for primary hyperhidrosis is focal visible excessive sweating presence for more than six months without an underlying cause, and at least two of the following. So bilateral, impairs daily living, at least one episode a week, patient is less than 25 years old, a family history, and that the sweating stops during sleep. In terms of secondary causes of hyperhidrosis, this is usually due to an underlying condition and occurs later in life, can be unilateral, unifocal, and occurs at night. So some potential causes include malignant, so lymphoma or solid organ tumors, infections such as tuberculosis, bacterial infections, and HIV, medications such as antidepressants, cholinergic agents, hypoglycemic agents, and hormonal agents, endocrine conditions such as pheochromocytoma, carcinoid syndrome, or hyperthyroidism, neurological conditions such as autonomic dysreflexia, strokes, or autonomic neuropathy, and menopause. So what is the management of hyperhidrosis? So some conservative or non-surgical management options include advice such as wearing loose-fitting clothes with natural fibres and avoiding caffeine and spicy foods which increase sweating. Use of topical antiperspirants that contain aluminium chloride daily. Patients can get topical anticholinergic wipes like those containing topical glycopyronium, um, which they can wipe on their area once a day, although from what I understand, these are quite expensive. Patients can try systemic medications such as um, anticholinergic medications, so oxybutynin or glycopyrrolate, but obviously this will have systemic side effects. There are some options for treatment to the local area for hyperhidrosis. So for patients with hyperhidrosis in the axilla, Botox injections can be used, which block the release of acetylcholine from presynaptic uh, neuromuscular and cholinergic neurons and reduce sweat production. In the axilla as well, patients can have ablative therapies that destroy the underlying glands. And so this includes some treatments that can be offered by dermatologists, such as microwave thermolysis or suction curatage, 
to remove the axillary eccrine and apocrine sweat glands. The other option for Palmer hyperhidrosis is a procedure called iontophoresis. And some institutions may have these machines and patients can come in intermittently to use them or patients can even buy their own machine. And essentially it's where an electrical current is run through the hands that are put in a sort of water um, bath. And then this, if you have repeated procedures, can reduce sweating. The other thing to think about in terms of medical treatments is thinking about whether this is actually secondary hyperhidrosis and trying to identify and treat any underlying cause. So withholding any causative medications, managing diabetes and encouraging weight loss or treating any um, endocrine disorders that could be contributing. In terms of surgical options, They have asked in the exam before about surgery for hyperhidrosis. And really surgery is reserved for patients with primary hyperhidrosis who are not overweight, who have no sweating during sleep, no significant comorbidities, and have sufficient resting heart rate, so more than 55. And it involves surgically cauterizing or cutting the upper thoracic sympathetic chain and is really reserved for Palmer hyperhidrosis. The success rate is very high with these procedures, so more than 95%, but one of the complications is that patients can get compensatory sweating in other previously unaffected locations, and this occurs in up to 70 to 80% of patients. The procedure is typically done thoracoscopically nowadays, but can also be done as an open procedure or um, through the neck as a cervical procedure. In terms of the thoracoscopic procedure, patients are placed supine with both arms abducted and the lung is deflated on that side with an incision through the third intercostal space in the anterior axillary line. And then additional working ports are inserted. The thoracic sympathetic trunk is identified by following the rib medially and essentially the second and third thoracic ganglia with their rami and the intervening part of the trunk is resected. And it's really important not to damage the first thoracic ganglion since the preganglionic fibers for the upper limb don't usually arise above this level and if you remove it, you can get a Horner's syndrome. Some potential side effects or risks of, or complications of this procedure include pneumothorax, intercostal neuralgia from the ports, Horner syndrome, as I've mentioned, which is where you get partial ptosis of the eye due to sympathetic innervation of the superior tarsal muscle, enophthalmos, anhydrosis on that side of the face, and meiosis or dilation of the pupil. So hopefully that's all we need to know about hyperhidrosis. The next topic I wanted to talk about is hydroadenitis suppurativa. So hydroadenitis suppurativa is a recurrent infection of the apocrine sweat glands. And if you remember from the start of this episode, the apocrine sweat glands are the ones that open up into the hair follicles. And this causes a chronic relapsing remitting inflammatory disease that commonly affects the 
areas where there's skin folds, so the groin, the underarms, and under the breasts. And a name for the skin fold areas is the intertriginous areas of the skin. And patients get persistent or recurrent boils and nodules, abscess formation, and this results in purulent discharge, sinuses, scarring, and recurrent infections. Hydroadenitis suppurativa occurs mostly in young people from puberty to about 40 years old and is more common in women compared to men. Some risk factors include metabolic syndrome, obesity, smoking, androgen overactivity, acne, and patients with diabetes. The pathophysiology of hydroadenitis suppurativa is obstruction or occlusion of the space around the hair follicle, thought to be due to keratinocyte proliferation and plugging, and contributed to by the inflammatory or infective process in the apocrine sweat glands. And so this causes um, blockage of the follicle that leads to rupture and an associated inflammatory or immune response, leading to perifolliculitis that can then set up a chronic foreign body type granulomatous inflammatory reaction and then formation of a formed epithelial tract. I can't believe I've gotten 17 and a half minutes into one of these episodes without talking about a grading system. So here it is, guys. The Hurley staging or grading system for hydroadenitis suppurativa. So this grading system is essentially a severity grading system that classifies hydroadenitis suppurativa into grades one, two, and three. So grade one is abscess formation, which can be single or multiple, with no sinus tracts or scarring. Hurley grade two is recurrent single or multiple abscesses with sinus tracts and scarring, but they're widely separated. And then grade three is diffuse or almost diffuse involvement of multiple interconnected tracts and abscesses. And there's some good pictures online if you look up the Hurley grading system of what these different grades look like. In terms of diagnosis of hydroadenitis suppurativa, this really is a clinical diagnosis. And so as general surgeons will often get referred abscesses to drain. And if you see a patient with multiple sinuses and scarring, you need to be thinking to yourself, is this actually hydroadenitis suppurativa? Because there's other treatment modalities for these patients that can improve their disease. So diagnosis is made with the presence of typical lesions, so deep-seated, painful nodules, sinuses, and scarring. In typical anatomical locations, so those intertriginous locations, and patients who have chronic and recurrent lesions. So let's finish off this topic by talking about management of hydroadenitis suppurativa. So management should be multidisciplinary and involves patient education, medical doctors, surgeons, and psychological support, because this is a long-term problem that can be quite distressing for patients. So in terms of medical or conservative management, 
general advice such as smoking cessation, weight loss, and wearing loose clothing to reduce mechanical stress on the skin of the regions can help improve disease. For patients with mild to moderate disease, so Hurley 1 and 2, topical and systemic antibiotics can be used for mild infections. Often patients are put on long course of doxycycline um, orally for up to three months, and they can also be prescribed topical clindamycin. Some patients may also be given a short course of prednisolone. And patients who have severe disease, so Hurley 3 disease, will be offered steroids and also, interestingly, can be managed with biologic agents. Because remember, this is a chronic inflammatory condition. So TNF-alpha inhibitors can be used for hydroadenitis suppurativa. Surgery does play a role in hydroadenitis suppurativa, and this is really should be used in conjunction with medical therapy. And the role is in refractory HS to try to remove a foci of disease and to eliminate scarred tissue. It can help prevent progression of disease by removing established epithelialized tracts and associated debris. And the options include punch debridement to try to remove um, follicle units with the sebaceous glands using a 5 to 7 millimeter punch biopsy. Incision and drainage of any acute abscesses, which will improve patients' disease in the short term. And for large areas of advanced disease, surgical wide excision can be used. And the deep margin should be normal appearing subcutaneous fat and not beyond this. Closure of the wounds under tension may lead to recurrent disease. So flaps and grafts in combination with plastics may be needed to achieve closure of wounds. And that completes this episode on sebaceous glands, a little bit on the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, hyperhidrosis and hydroadenitis suppurativa. We're getting pretty close to our exams now, which is a little bit stressful. So I hope that you're all starting to re-listen to some of those high yield episodes to really bring the knowledge back into the forefront of your brain and make it recallable for the exam. I hope your preparation is going really well and just wanted to say thanks to everyone who's reached out to me to talk about the podcast. It's kept me motivated while my stress levels for the exam have been slowly creeping up Um, and it's really nice to know that so many people are getting something out of this resource. If you haven't had an opportunity to reach out yet, please send me a message on social media or leave me a review on wherever you listen to the podcast because it does make it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!